Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes after weeks with like holidays, with Good Friday, Easter, a worship night this last week, you're sometimes like, whew. Or maybe for you, it was just getting out of the house this morning, whether it was with yourself, can't get yourself going, <laughs> couldn't get your spouse, kids, whatever, friends. We're just thankful that you're here. Thank you for joining us today to praise our God. We are in the second sermon uh, in this section that we are entitling Godly Perspective. Uh, we, we started, we, we've, been, uh, we've been started this, this section the week before Easter in James 4, 13 through 17, talking about God's timing and his providence. Uh, we talked about how we want to acknowledge that the Lord has control over everything we do, and we want to be able to say like James, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And we, we have no knowledge that even this morning that we were going to wake up and that there would be breath in our lungs, that our heart would continue to beat let alone that, that we could get out of the house today, that our car was going to work, and that all the plans that we have are really going to happen. And the beautiful thing is that we don't have to worry. We have a good God who has a good plan that's going to help us to do exactly what he wants us to do, that we might glorify in him more, and that we might have good in our life. And we've talked about how in this section of James, things can feel a little disjointed, a, a little staccato to use a musical term, as though James is just bringing different things in and, and sort of sharing them all at once. It can kind of feel like Proverbs when you go to read Proverbs and you're, you're sometimes wondering, I get that these things go together, but I'm not quite sure how. And that's why we wanted to try to helpfully uh, arrange this and talk about godly perspective in this area. You know, James already has shown us how God's perspective and timing and his providence may not be at all what ours is like, but there are many more areas in our life that, that are oftentimes disjointed from what God has a perspective in and of. You know, remember, this is the God who sent his very son to earth. He was born in a manger. Uh, he, he lived a life as a, as a carpenter, likely with his dad. He walked around as an itinerant preacher, usually slept on the dirt at night, and then he died a sinner's death on the cross. Now, this is our God who rescued his people from Egypt through swarms of gnats and flies, a river like blood, and even the death of the firstborns. He's the God who guided his people through the desert with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. <clears throat> this is the God who punished King Nebuchadnezzar by having him wander around in the grass like a cattle, eating the grass while his hair and his nails grew long. This is the God who asked his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. I'm guessing if you had to write the story of this very real world in your wildest of dreams, you wouldn't have come up with all of that. It's as our God says through his prophet Isaiah, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We shouldn't be offended or surprised that we have to come back often to God's word, to scripture, to understand who he is and what he's about, what he is doing continuously. Our world is constantly chugging on, trying to normalize many ways of thinking and living and embedding those ways in us that are very contrary to our God. 
Today, James is going to move us on to a new topic under this idea of godly perspective. He's going to talk about riches, money, possessions, <clears throat> and I'm not sure why, but I've noticed that often when we talk about this topic, it can feel odd in church. I, I, I know what I felt it from that side. I feel it sometimes even when I've taught on it, and I'm sure there's many different levels to this feeling. You know, some of you are probably like, ah, this is the, the preacher's moment. He's going to kind of poke me, make me feel guilty about how much money I'm giving or not giving to the church. Sorry if that's your experience. I've had that experience as well, so I can understand it. Some of you might be having a different thought. Some of you might be feeling something maybe more akin to when you've been having a great dinner and a meal with someone, and then all of a sudden, near the end of the evening, the conversation starts to shift, and you realize you're becoming invited into a multi-level marketing scheme that you too could make some money if you would just join them with it. You might be sitting there this morning going, I'm not sure where this conversation is going, and I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. I can understand that. Ultimately, I think what is hard for us when we, when we bring up this topic of money, riches, wealth, it's what Jesus says here in Matthew 6.21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You know, money, possessions, wealth, it has roots that run deep down inside of us, and they're, they're tangled up around our heart. And we can't talk about money and possessions and wealth without being forced to look at our heart. And if we're honest, we don't often like what that reveals in us. None of us here are perfect. We're all growing. We're all being sanctified in the Lord. But nothing can more quickly reveal what's in our heart than to look at our riches and our wealth and our possessions. I'm guessing that's another part of the discomfort that we might have when these topics come up in church, where we're quickly thinking about those things that we don't want to have exposed within us, the fears, the worries, the wrongly placed desires, many things that if we trace those roots of wealth and possessions and riches down into our heart and we started to tug, we wouldn't like seeing what kind of idol comes out that has been having a place of priority or importance in our heart and life. To be honest, any of these concerns and our general hesitancy points to the fact of how much riches, how much money has an effect and a control over our life. Thankfully, even if we're hesitant to talk about it, God isn't. Some of you may have heard these kind of statistics before, but I find them so helpful to be reminded of again and again. There are almost 2,350 verses in your Bible that talk about possessions, money, and riches. That's about 10% of your Bible. Even more amazingly, when we look at Jesus's life, just those three short years that we have of his ministry, 15% of what he shares is about possessions, riches, wealth, how we're to engage with it and what we're supposed to do. He talks more about that than prayer and faith combined. 16 of his 38 parables are all about riches and possessions. The only thing that Jesus talked about more than riches and possessions was about the kingdom of God and its very coming and expansion here on this earth. So it, it, it shouldn't be odd then. It should be odd then that we don't, don't talk about this more. Just by pure numbers, we should be talking about it several times a year as we work through Scripture. You know, when we think about God's desires to see us devoted rightly to know his heart on these areas, and it makes sense then as we look at James and see all the ways and times that James has already hit this idea of riches and wealth throughout this book. You know, he started in, in James 1 and he said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Or as he said in James 2, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Or just recently in James 4, he said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. <clears throat> James talks about this in other places, even indirectly or directly. When he, when he was encouraging us that, that we have many grievances with one another, he pointed to our coveting of each other's things, possessions. And when he wanted to, to give us an encouragement that our faith should have real workings in our life, something that comes out from an active faith, he pointed to the ways that we could help others in very real, tangible ways with their clothing, their food, warmth. You know, James has been good to, to tackle this issue of riches and wealth again and again and to point out the different problems that he's having. And this morning, he's doing what we said he often does, which is he's kind of making another lap around and he's coming back to riches again and he's going to be a little more explicit. So let's look at what he says this morning in James 5, 1 through 6 together. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And James starts this section out very much like he did the last section with come now. It makes us think he's inviting us back in as the reader, as he would have been to these Jewish Christians, to, to hear what he has for them. Yet we see a similar problem as we did before. He talks about murdering. I mean, are we really to think that James is concerned that these Jewish Christians that he's writing to, that to me and you, that this is going to be a common problem that we're murdering the righteous people? It makes us wonder, is this section about unbelievers or believers? How are we to begin to come to this this morning? I mean, look at the first piece where he starts. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. Those are words that are onomatopoeias. They, 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 they are spelled in Greek like the sound they make. Weep and howl. It's meant to be lamenting, mourning. And they're told to mourn, to lament, to make these noises because of the miseries that are coming upon them. Not just one, but many miseries. And when we connect those ideas together in Scripture, especially throughout the Old Testament, the idea of miseries and lamenting and mourning and weeping, it's always the idea of how sinners should respond to the judgment of God that is coming. We see it throughout places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah. James is, is likely thinking about those places, and he's also thinking about the words of our Lord Jesus, who says this in Luke 6. He says this, but woe, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. <clears throat> Woe, lament, mourn. All these ideas together brings most scholars to believe that he is talking here about unbelieving rich people. The judgment that they will have coupled with this idea of murder, that, that this is people who've really gone all the way down the road in their sin. And he's presenting this before his readers. Now, again, the Bible doesn't condemn all wealth. Neither does the Bible promise wealth to all people. 
Rather, God is always concerned about the heart of his people, whether they have money or don't have money, and where their affections are and oriented towards. James seems concerned here to show his readers the potential outcome of their pursuit of riches, their, their pursuit of their possessions, their pursuit of money, that they may tread forward in life carefully and in fear of the God who judges. I think that's the same way we should read this this morning, as a warning that we might be careful. It's not just for sinful unbelievers and what will happen to them someday, but the potential of where all people can go as they pursue riches. And even more so, I think this could be very appropriate for who we are. You know, I've said this many times, that we, we are considered rich by the scales of the world. And I wanted to kind of redo that. I, couldn't, I didn't know what the current numbers were, so I went back and looked again. So I want you to get a number in your head. Get a number in your head of what you think would be the amount of income that would put you in some of the richest people in this world. <clears throat> okay, you got it? Let me start here. If you make more than $4,500 a year, you're in the top 50% of all earners in this world. That means 50% of the people in this world would look at that dollar sign and think that $4,500 a year would be something they would aspire to. In fact, people on the far end of that spectrum would look at that and think that is an amazing life that they could only dream of having. Even more humbling is the fact that if you make over $34,000 a year, you are not just in the top 10%, the top 5%, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in this world. Those statistics should humble us and be, make us so thankful to God that he placed us in this time, in this place, something none of us chose. Something none of us did for ourselves. We live in a country today that is rich in ways that just centuries ago, the whole world would not have understood. And not only that, not only are we all in the top 50%, likely in the top 10, 5, and maybe even 1% of wage earners in this world, but we live in a world that, as Jesus says, says speaks well of riches speaks well of that, tries to encourage us towards it. You know, I, I did an, a very unscientific examination and pulled up my, my social feeds on Friday night and started scrolling through it. And by my count, and maybe my algorithm's really different than yours, but I had about 50% of the things that I scrolled through were making much of people with money, the things they could do with that money, encouraging me that me, I too could do as well as them if I just followed someone else's plan and what they have for me. We are the rich. And we are being encouraged constantly by this world around us to pursue riches. We are the ones who need this warning this morning. We are the ones who need to think carefully about what Jesus said. That Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will, oh, excuse me, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. James is going to, to give us four main charges here in this section. Four main charges about why the rich will mourn at judgment. And each one of these have serious implications for me and you. One, he says that the rich, potentially even us, that we've laid up rotting treasures in the last day. That the rich have defrauded the workers, that they were self-indulgent, and that the rich murdered the righteous person. Lord Jesus, would you help us to hear this this morning? Would you help us to be those who are willing to consider the warnings of James and, and the ways that we might need to heed carefully our walk as those who have much in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's start with the first three verses in this section. James says this, he says, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl "'for the miseries that are coming upon you. "'Your riches have rotted, "'your, your garments are moth-eaten, "'your gold and silver have corroded, "'and their corrosion will be evidence against you "'and will eat your flesh like fire. "'You've laid up treasure in the last days.'" 
there are three smaller accusations inside of this one large one. One, your garments are moth-eaten, your riches have rotted, and your gold and silver has corroded. I mean, the imagery here is clear. It's that the rich have had so much extra that they've kind of piled it up and set it aside over here. They're not even using it. And in its disuse, it's falling apart. It's just rotting away. I mean, we, we are so, get so excited sometimes. I've even done this, like looking at these shows that, that talk about barn finds, right? They, they go sorting through someone's garage and in the back of the barn, here's this wonderful item covered in dust. And yet this is the sorrow of this. The sorrow that that item was meant to be used, it just got ignored and forgotten over in the corner. It might be worth a lot of money today, but it was never used for what it was supposed to be used for. It's, it's the finding of a toy in a box that's still unopened that's going to sell for a lot of money on eBay, but it was never played with by a child the way it was intended to be used. You know, James says it's exactly those kind of things that are going to be evidence against the rich, evidence against me and you. I couldn't help think about like my own garage, the things that are, that are sitting on the shelf. We've remodeled five houses. I have so many tools. I use almost none of them ever. You're welcome to come borrow tools if you ever need one, by the way. It, 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 what, why wouldn't I want them to be used? Why wouldn't I want to loan them out and have them break from use the way they're supposed to be used rather than rust falling apart on the shelf? Now, this section seems like a very practical and pragmatic argument. If you're rich and you simply set stuff aside as a representation of your wealth, of what you have, you will be judged for that. You know, I read, I read a story literally just yesterday about this man that they found. Uh, it was in Europe. Uh, he's in failing health. They're having to put him in hospice. He can't even communicate right now. So they know a little bit about him, but not a whole lot. But they found him in a warehouse, a series of warehouses with 230 cars. Now, as a car guy, I'm going to tell you, this wasn't just any cars. These were Aston Martins, Lamborghinis, Mercedes, BMWs, the best of the best. Some of them were cars that only 20 of them were ever made in this lifetime. And yet here's this man about to die, his whole collection being auctioned off. It's exactly what James is talking about with no disrespect to this man who I don't know the state of his soul and his heart towards the Lord. Now, James is saying that the corrosion and falling apart of all the stuff that we set aside, the gathering of dust will be like evidence against you. Evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's the imagery of hell. Uh, that, that the falling apart of the goods and the wealth that we have will be part of the judgment brought upon us. And I think it's so easy, so easy to see the practical and pragmatic implications of this statement that we miss that James is actually trying to make a theological statement here. And we can see that in this sentence, this sentence that says, you have laid up treasure in the last day. In the New Testament, in the Christian use of this phrase, the last day, we're not talking about the last day of your life as you get older and you don't know what's going to happen. Again and again, this phrase, the last day, the last days, is used consistently to refer to this period of time between Jesus's first coming and when he's going to come back again in power and judgment. Paul uses it this way in 2 Timothy 3.1. The author of Hebrews uses it in 1.2. Peter uses it in 2 Peter 3.3 this way. Even God, when he gives a declaration in Acts 2.17, uses the statement that way. They all use the phrase, the last day or the last days, to talk about this period of time between Jesus and when judgment is coming. You know, it's all Christians, early Christians lived with this expectation you can see it written throughout scripture. They believed that they were living in this in, indefinite period of time between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. And they were living expectantly that it was going to happen soon. 
you know, for them, I think it might have been a little easier. It might be harder for us to believe that. For them, 10, 10 years, several decades after Jesus, you, you might be able to believe that, yes, he might come back again in 10 or 20 years from now, a couple more decades, and live expectantly that it's going to truly be soon. I worry that for us, living several millennia from that moment, we tend to have the attitude that we have several more millennia until it will happen again, rather than realize statistically it's probably more probable that it'll happen tomorrow. Right? We, we, we get in this attitude of, I can wait. I, I, I'm not in a hurry to, to do what God's necessarily asked of me. I have time for that. I'll set a good base for myself and my family. We'll get set up well. Then I'll focus on the things that the Lord has asked me to do. And we so quickly forget what James just told us in James 4, 13 through 17, that we do not know God's timing. And in doing so, we forget to live rightly in this, this last day. Christians, one of the most amazing things about this day is that we have been given something to do right now. We've been given a commission. We call it the Great Commission. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to use this time this last day, these last days between when Jesus died and rose again until when he comes back in in judgment and glory to further the kingdom of our Lord and Savior by making disciples of all peoples. Is that the priority of your life? And probably even more to James' point this morning, if we looked at your riches, your wealth, and your possessions, is that how you are using those? You know, James's main charge here this morning is that the rich with their piles of money, their piles of possessions that are rotting and rusting are proof that they have not made this great commission, their last day purpose, their true goal of their life. They may be, they, and maybe even us, I, I fear at times, are not serving and following our Lord Jesus by being on the mission that he was on. They are not about Jesus's primary concern, as we mentioned earlier, his primary concern by volume and his primary concern by passion, the ever-expanding kingdom of God that he wants to see fill this whole earth. Each one of these points that comes can fall underneath that category, a category of are we living rightly in this time and what God has called us to do? Now take a look at this next verse here at James 5.4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I mean, to be a rich person in this time period meant you own land. And James is saying that many of these people have become rich through fraud, holding back the payment that was due to people. Obviously, that is a problem with honesty. Uh, to be dishonest is, is to, not, to not honor the other person as an image bearer of God. And you wrongly image our God who gives completely holy and good and good timing. But there's an, another problem here. You know, those who are constantly being defrauded, who constantly aren't being given their wages that are due to them will struggle to fulfill the commission that they're called to be a part of. They'll be, be more worried about where their shelter and where their food will come from and have less time to engage in spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us this morning would say and look at this passage, hey, never had an employee in my life. That's not my problem. 
And for those of you who've been a part of a business, might have been part of paying people, <coughs> you might say, hey, I made sure that the, the checks went out on time. I never kept the money back. That's not me either. But as I thought about it this week, I was personally convicted outside of those two things. You know, I was thinking about how globalized our world has become and how my goods come from so many diverse places and wondered how often has my wealth, my access to possessions, my access to things that I believe will enrich my life, how often have they ever come from people who've been defrauded, as it were, in the process of making those things? You know, now, I know this question can have political overtones, and I'm not trying to talk politically here. I'm trying to talk about the heart issue. Have you considered as a Christian the problem that other people might not be rightly cared for in the things that you want to enjoy? And even more so, if that person happens to be a brother and sister in Christ, how are you potentially holding them back from the Great Commission cause that you yourself want to participate in or should want to participate in as well? Have you inhibited their ability to be a part of this Great Commission because of your desire for wealth? comfort, and possessions at the expense of their cheap or maybe oppressed labor. In this next verse, James continues to demonstrate the ways that we can be selfish within this pursuit of riches. He says, you lived, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. We use our possessions to please ourselves, to fatten ourselves as though we are living in a day of slaughter, James says, a day where we are meant to get fat and weak and lazy that we might just barely roll into the slaughterhouse at the end of it. Not as though we live in the last days, days of action, days of purpose, days that are constantly filled with, as Jesus said, going, going and engaging others. And I pray that this last statement is something that would never be said of any of us. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Those who will ultimately become a target for those who are literally hell-bent on pursuing riches will likely be the righteous. And whether we're talking about literally killing someone or figuratively putting them down or making them less of, the righteous will often be those who don't resist. It's because we're those who've been told to take up our cross. We're going to live like Jesus Christ. As James has been encouraging us that we should so often see our suffering as part of God's process of sanctifying and growing us, helping us to see him more, that we are those who even in the midst of persecution want to see the gospel go forth so we will walk into it. You know, may, God, may God protect us from ever experiencing that, but from ever being the people who intentionally or unintentionally inhibit the righteous man and his good work in the last days. You know, as I was thinking about this passage kind of leading up to today, I was thinking through those 2,350 different verses and was wondering, how am I going to balance a sermon with that many different things? All the different ways we can talk about riches. You know, yes, the Bible tells us to be willing to give away our money to the poor in Luke 12, 33, but it also tells us to take note of the ant and to store up when times are good so that when hard times come, we'll have provision in Proverbs 6, 6. We're to take the talents that the Lord has given us and not just bury them or not use them or we're to multiply them, make more out of it in Matthew 25, 14. We're also to give generously like the woman who gave the last of her money at the offering in the temple in Mark 12, 41. What I love about what James has done here is he's given us one idea to focus all of those concerns on, this idea of the last day. 
in thinking about that last day, we can help hold together all the caveats and concerns with one purpose in mind. You know, our goal is to fulfill the great commission and to share the good news of the gospel with God's chosen people across this great globe of ours. Yes, that's going to take money. Yes, it will likely take businesses in different places to support the people. It may even, if God continues to wait, mean that we need to pass wealth on generationally so other people can continue on that process of doing this. We, we will want and need to use money, but is your money, is your riches, are your possessions being used for this purpose? That's the question today. Have you ordered your life so that your questions about money revolve around your desire to fill this great commission that God has given you, both in your home, with your family and your children, with your neighbors, in your work, in this state, and across the entire globe, and not about how you just help yourself? Are you putting your money towards eternal rewards in Jesus, or are you fattening yourselves for a future slaughter? Have you considered what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 10? He said, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's true, friends. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. James, again, has been clearly thinking about Jesus and probably even what Jesus said right before what we said earlier from Matthew 6 about our treasures in our heart. Here's what Jesus said in the piece right before. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Is our heart on the desire of God? Is our heart most excited about the work and the purpose that God has given us in this day, in these days, this moment where we are to be fulfilling the great commissioning and bringing disciples to him? Now, I've always wondered how I would have responded if I was the rich young ruler, right? Jesus said to him, to the rich young ruler, the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. As I've been reading through James, I realized he had another option. He could have been excited. He could have been thankful that God had put him in a place that he had these possessions to leverage, to use for the sake and the call of the gospel, to partner with Jesus and what he was doing. We see other people like Lydia, a seller of purple cloth who does this, partners with the, the apostles in Acts that their, their ministry might go forward. She uses what God has given her for the sake of the great commission. And people do this not to earn their place and the pleasure of God, but rather as beloved sons and daughters who God has said, you have a purpose now. You get to be about the same business I'm about, which is building and growing this kingdom through making disciples. You know, as you hear this passage today, how are you going to respond? How are, how are you willing to use your possessions rightly for the last day? How is God calling you today to use what he has given you? Yes, some of that is probably to give to the church. We're all called to give to the church because the goal and the, the, the desire of the church is to equip 
and encourage people for this great commission goal. That, that as people leave this gathering, as we leave our times of being with one another, of being equipped and learned and sent out, that the great commission might actually go forth. That you might feel excited for that, desirous for it, and able to do that. And God is likely calling you to many other good things, ways to give directly to those you know, to engage your neighborhood, to engage your work, to engage your family. You know, if you're wondering this morning if you're the rich, you likely are. If you're wondering how to walk this out well, consider that one phrase James has given us here today. How are you laying up treasures for the last day? Are you laying them up for the glory and the treasure of God in heaven, or are you laying them up for yourself? Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you that you can give us hard words that can also come with joy. That it can be hard to examine the pitfalls and the danger of where you've placed us, even in time and space, that as Americans, we are those who have so much more. And Lord God, would it well up in us a healthy fear of the God who judges, but more importantly, a joy a joy that as your sons and daughters, you have called us to partner, come into this process of spreading the sweet and wonderful news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for his people, that through faith they might come back into a wonderful relationship with you. Lord God, would you make that true in our own lives? Would you let us lay aside a pursuit of riches that's just for our own sake, for our own fatness and slaughter, but rather for treasures in heaven? that would bring glory to you and would ultimately be for our goodness. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.